Hi guys, and welcome to Hauntedology. I'm your host, Megan, and I cannot wait to dive into this next episode. It is my belief that every city has a story to tell, and it's our job to listen. So let's see what this special city has to tell us today. so excited to jump into today's episode because I think it's got one of the probably spookiest stories I was able to dig up for you guys um another thing is it's the last reason as to why we believe Savannah is so much more haunted than New Orleans or Charleston so once we finish kind of going through the why then we get to go to all of the lores, myths, legends, sex lies, alibis, hangings, and suicides. Uh, a colonial Savannah, antebellum Savannah, post-war Savannah, they all had it. And now we're gonna uncover what they left behind for us to find. Hey guys, quick surprise actually. There is a Facebook group and a Facebook page both for a dose of knowledge. So if you guys would like to get on there, I'm on there and I try to post a little bit, but it's just been a new thing. So I haven't really engaged all that much because there's not that many people on there and I'm still trying to build it, but I figured it'd be a great way to hear from you guys and hear more about what you wanted. So if you're interested, please check it out on Facebook. It's a dose of knowledge, as always. Many cultures believe that when we bury our dead, we not only bury their bodies, but we lay their souls to rest along with them, implying that if we disrupt those graves, we can surely anger the souls of those buried there is it true i don't know but if it is true that was certainly account for why savannah is the most haunted city in america you see savannah's endured more than her fair share of disease and death ever since the founding of the city in 1733 the disease that has plagued savannah the most is definitely yellow fever Yellow fever is a viral disease carried by mosquitoes, and medical professionals would not figure out what was causing this disease until 1902. And by this point, Savannah had already seen like three epidemics. With nothing to really go on, residents would even begin to call it stranger's disease because of its habit of afflicting new arrivals in the ports. So, if you don't know, Savannah is very swampy, humid environment. The city itself is quite beautiful, but the areas surrounding it are marshy wetlands and a breeding ground for freaking mosquitoes, man. Like, they're still an issue, like 110%. I think they just got worse. But... That is why it was so much worse in Savannah than in other colonial cities. 
and the symptoms of yellow fever were gruesome. So, the symptoms would actually include, you know, basic stuff like bleeding, vomiting, muscle aches, and it could progress until the victim was in a coma or even suffered from delirium, followed by death. But it also had some type of famous flu-like symptoms, you know, the characteristic ones, shaking, chills, fever, and often with these symptoms, the liver would start to fail. And that would make the patient's skin and sclera turn yellow with jaundice. So the sufferers would get a yellowish tone to their skin. And that is why it was dubbed yellow fever. Because they would, of course, get a fever, a few more un pleasant symptoms and that characteristic yellow look so when the liver function was failing sufferers would usually also hemorrhage from the gums so their gums their nose and their gastrointestinal tract their entire stomach area basically would bleed profusely and this is gruesome but for others if they did not break the fever on their own and begin to recover they would end up vomiting this like half digested blood spewed like in horrible projectile like exorcism type spasms like it was really bad and it was said to be some excruciating pain And if the hemorrhaging didn't kill the victim, the renal failure would. Mortality for these victims were about 50 to 60 percent. And those who did last, they only lasted at most a week. But that was a week of horrible agony. The plagues were actually so common, though, that the wealthy of those cities would leave the summer during what they dubbed sickly season because they had no way to prevent it. They didn't know the cause of it. All they knew was to run. So that left the poor and the enslaved who could of course not afford to leave and their masters probably wouldn't let them. So they were there to suffer the brunt of the recurring epidemics. Savannah would actually see three major epidemics of yellow fever. And, you know, like I said, with the only known prevention being to flee the area, once a yellow fever was recognized, a panicked exodus of people followed. So, yellow fever was an economic disaster on top of everything else. Literally, like, bringing entire communities to a halt. People abandoned their homes, officials quarantined ships, businesses died, stores closed... Virtually every year from 1793 on, newspapers reported yellow fever in some American city. Seaports as far north as Boston, New York, and Philly even experienced the plague. But it most commonly occurred in the southern cities, especially Savannah, Mobile, and New Orleans. And I'm not really sure about Mobile's layout, but I can only guess based on what I know about the other two. They must all have that swampy marsh environment.
Diseases, especially of the unknown origin, can cause trouble. And by round three, Savannah knew this fact all too well. Officials didn't want people fleeing when they noticed the first signs of round three coming. They did not want commerce interfered with and a mass of hysteric city dwellers leaving their homes unattended. It was just going to be an opening for more issues with the city mostly emptied out and the poor and desperate staying behind. Savannah would have become a hub for looters and crime of all sorts. So, again, in order to avoid this, officials began to keep everything under wraps. In the beginning, when the first case was noticed, you can say, either from ineptitude or on purpose, the earlier cases were diagnosed as intermittent fever. And intermittent fever is a blanket term that covers malaria as well as other diseases. On August 21st, a young kid named James Patrick Clary's death was classified that way as intermittent fever. Father J.B. Langlois, rector of the cathedral, dutifully inscribed these words, remittent fever and congestion, in the church's funeral register, writing that physician C. Stone considered the cause of death to be unknown other than the remittent fever and congestion. However, later on, someone, and it's still unknown who, as to this day, the hand is not was not recognizable, I guess, to them, but someone came in and wrote yellow fever above the disease that supposedly killed the 12-year-old Bryan Street resident boy. But there's no denying what killed him. After the words yellow fever repeatedly appeared on the church register, Father Edward Cafferty, pastor of St. Patrick's Church, contracted the disease on August 13th. He was ill for eight days. His symptoms tallying with severe cases of yellow fever up to but not reaching the black vomit stage you know, according to one authority, as of course, I wasn't there, so I didn't know. At this point, though, things were looking grim for Savannah, and the city needed help. Charleston, which had, for some reason, a much slighter incidence of disease, stepped up to help and sent priests to Savannah to help the overburdened clergy. With everybody dying, somebody needed a clergy member to come help and be there for them. So... They were very outnumbered at this point. The Catholic Almanac later listed Sisters of Mercy, Mary Birchman Wheeler and Mary Blandina Lysot as victims of the 1876 Savannah epidemic, as well as Sister Mary Martha Manning of the Order of Saints Agnes and Father J.B. Langlois, Coincidentally, the same one who marked the first 12-year-old boy's death as intermittent fever instead of yellow fever. And then following him was James A. Kelly. Both these were pastors. Father Cafferty contracted the disease. Somehow he was able to fight it off and actually would end up not dying for some kind of like 20 years later. And in total, according to Dr. William R. Warren, almost 4,000 people lost their lives to yellow fever between 1807 and the Great Epidemic of 1820. 
So with all three epidemics combined, it was like 4,000 total. So this is where a lot of Savannah's ghost stories and tales of the disturbed souls come from. Like, let me explain. So Savannah started out with a population of 5,000. And after the epidemic of 1820, 1,500 remained. And yellow fever would continue to plague Savannah until the very end in the 19th century when a cause was finally figured out. To make things worse, the top floors of Savannah homes were often used to quarantine those family members with yellow fever to keep them away from the rest of the family below. So the person would just waste away in their bed like yellow and skin and bones and their internal organs collapsing inside them, coughing up blood and burning with fever. Like It was a horrible way to go. And most would die within a few days, but the only person allowed to see them after contracting the disease would be the doctor. So they would just die this agonizing death all by themselves because their own family didn't even want to be near them for fear of getting what they had. So I know 1,500 out of 5,000 does seem like a big number, but let me put this in perspective as to why this adds so much to Savannah's past. So, we had three major outbreaks, 1820, 1854, and 1876, with many deaths in between, just not to, like, epidemic outbreak status. With Savannah, at this point, only being 2.2 square miles, think for a second of how many people died in their homes, adding to Savannah's dark, tragic, and haunted past. I mean, after sufferers were released to a death after excruciating pain, no one left behind wanted to touch their bodies out of fear of catching the disease. So think about it. Like, you are sitting here in the worst pain you've ever imagined. Your family won't get near you. That's, that's got to make you a little, little, little salty. I'm just saying. I would think that, I mean, I, I think I'd be pretty irritated. But, you know, maybe they were more understanding. I don't know. But, I grew up with parents that, come hell or high water, they were going to be there for me. And I can imagine my mom being like, you know what? Screw you, doctor. I'm going to sit with her. Even if I catch it, I'm probably already exposed because she's literally done this before when I was sick and I thought I had something crazy. I didn't, but which is why I can pretty much vouch for the fact that she would do it in the situation too. But that would... That would leave me feeling still loved and cared for. But not many people are fortunate enough to have a parent like I do. Or parents like I do. And I can see where it would leave a really sore spot with them. Maybe even in their afterlife. If you believe in things like that. And if you've ever traveled to Colonial Park Cemetery in downtown... Go down around 12 feet. There's an aisle in the middle with shelves on both sides. Back in the day, a tomb keeper would crawl down in and receive the body. They'd place it on the depart. They'd place the body of the departed on a shelf and seal the tomb closed as they left. This was how they generally would get rid of deceased family members. 
Well, in the days of the yellow fever outbreak, little time would pass and another family member would die. When the family came to place the newly departed's body inside the tomb, it was not uncommon to discover scratch marks on the inside of the door, a.k.a. evidence that someone was trying to get out. It was a terrifying truth, like, to realize this, but you just buried your loved one alive. Victims of comas and deep fevers, doctors weren't good at identifying that yet. So, I mean... Yeah, I mean, this person, his his uh, his stomach and chest may be going up and down, but he hasn't moved in a couple of days. I think he's dead, Doc. That's kind of how it was. So, a lot of people get buried alive. And if you died from yellow fever, you were lucky to be placed in a coffin and given a proper burial. Unless, I mean, of course, you were still alive, then you weren't very lucky. But anyways, even that had its problems. The heartbeat would go so slow to a crawl, and then the breathing, if you, you had to look so closely to see that rise and fall I was talking about, because it made their breathing shallow, barely perceivable, and of course, nobody wanted to touch them to feel if they were moving. So at this point in time, you know, the cause of the disease was a mystery. No one wanted to touch your body. It was terrible. So... So many people were buried alive for that reason. And they were placed in coffins, and coffins were then uncovered, like I mentioned, from all over the Colonial Park Cemetery, not just in family tombs, like we discussed, but often in other areas of the cemetery, they were discovered with having scratch marks on the lids, suggesting that these people awoke from their coma to discover a rather dire situation. If anything could call a ghost to remain behind in a cemetery, I can, I can like, 110% see that it would be the result of being buried alive. Like, I would be ticked. Maybe I'm just an angry person. I don't know. But I, I would think that could anger some souls. Uh, but, you know, I don't know. We never will know. But everybody thinks that it is possible that some of the ghosts out there are the ones from yellow fever. And one of the most reported ghosts in Colonial Park is that of a shadow person weaving its way through the headstones and burial plots. We don't know who he is or she or whatever because it didn't give a gender. But we don't even know the person's story. So we can only assume it's one of the victims of yellow fever because not only... Were they buried alive sometimes, but they were buried in mass graves. So, in Colonial Park Cemetery, there were mass graves set up for the dead from one of the yellow fever outbreaks. If you read the sign on the site of the mass grave, it states that almost 700 people were buried in the mass grave. But, <laughs> here's the catch. The exact number buried, 666 people died and buried in a mass grave from yellow fever. Creepy much? <laughs> Why, well, yeah, it is. They rounded it up to 700 because they did not like having to write that number on a plaque. But, you know, who can really blame them? So we've talked about the clergy members, the family members, the victims, but what happens to those who tend to the sick and the dead and the dying?
what did the medical community go through during these epidemics? It's actually been said that ghosts and other paranormal activity are regularly reported at places such as the Candler Hospital. So today we have two versions of Candler Hospital in Savannah, but neither of the two are actually the old Candler Hospital that this story is speaking of. This one's going to be in the downtown area and not in the more uptown area. So it was in this hospital that people reported seeing the ghosts of doctors who who would die while treating patients. And they say that they still walk the floors of homes on Oglethorpe and Jones Street with so many instances of death and disease. And on a massive scale, it only stands to reason that it surely helped make Savannah as haunted as it is. We don't know anything about the nurses involved. Um, back then, I know doctors did a lot of house calls. But we had a lot of big places, hotels, turn into hospitals like the Marshall House. And we'll get into more detail on the Marshall House later. But um, the old uh, Telfair Hospital, old Candler Hospital, that was really like the big hub. And I can only imagine what these doctors were going through, like fighting a disease you don't know how to fight, losing people. It had to have been tough. But there is one job that I gotta say, I think I rather would have been the doctor. Remember that whole buried alive thing we touched on? So, when they started realizing that they were burying people alive, they gave the night watchman at the graveyard a new job. Your new job requirement? You got a shovel with you at all times. If I had this job and actually heard a bell ring, I'd probably freak out. What they did was when a person was buried, they would tie a little string to their wrist that was attached to a bell above ground. And when the person started stirring and moving, they would realize they were alive and they would hear the ding, 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 ding. And somebody would go, oh, we've got a dead ringer. And I swear, if I heard those dings, number one. I'd probably be like, oh, help, they bury somebody alive. Then I'd realize I was the help, poor, unlucky, not dead person. Then I'd be like running and trying to get the person, probably tripping over everything, including my shovel and my own two feet. You know, I mean, I'm a klutz on a good day. So couple that with like sheer panic and fright that I got to go dig somebody up who ain't actually dead. But, you know, then I'd get there and the ringing would either stop and I'd then I would have just let someone die. Or have to dig forever while silently hoping this person would keep calm now that I'm getting to them and not use up the limited amount of oxygen that they have because it would really, really, really suck to dig all the way down there and find out that they died just to have to rebury them. Either way I look at it, this job just straight sucked. And I would not have wanted to do it. I would I would have rather be the doctor. Like I'd rather touch them, like risk touching them than having to have, like, heart attacks on a nightly basis. Like, that would suck. But, (laughs) 
since I probably just made you guys laugh when you came here for something creepy and scary. To add a little more chill to the story, I'm going to read you guys a ghost story I came across on this blog relating to Yellow Fever and Colonial Park Cemetery. And let me just say, I literally feel bad for the person who experienced this because when I finished reading this story, I had to turn on my light. I was so freaked out. And mm -mm, nope, like I I really want to like have to tell it again, but it's really rather interesting. So as always, are you ready for a ghost story? So the story this girl writes about is that she moved to Savannah for college and had like no clue about the city's tortured past. And her apartment was across from, anybody know? Yeah, you guessed it, Colonial Park Cemetery. And behind her apartment was a complex little grassy area that would lead to a playground, fairly basic. A little odd that the playground was across from the cemetery, but she didn't really think much of it. One night, while finishing up some schoolwork, her dog, her dog starts barking and needs to go to the bathroom. No big deal. She really doesn't want to go out at night, but she gets up and takes the dog out anyways. It's around 9 p.m. and they go outside and she takes the dog to the grassy area near the playground. And luckily, it's kept well lit by the streetlight. And she watches her dog do whatever it needs to do so she can clean it up. And, you know, starts cleaning up and throws it in the garbage when she gets back to the sidewalk she notices a small figure on the other side of the cemetery gates it was a little boy he had dark pants on and what looked like a brown hoodie with the hood up and curiosity aroused the girl and she walked over to the gate and her dog like just kept barking like it was going mad and you know she didn't want it to scare the child so she kept asking the dog like stop you know knock it off And it quickly dawned on her that somebody might have lost their kid while touring earlier. Because they do tours all day during, um, like, 8 to 5, I think, in there. And so she was got really worried for this kid. There were multiple gates into the cemetery, but the main one was at the corner of Abercorn and Oglethorpe. And when it got closer to closing time, the only gate that remained open was the main entrance until all of the tourists were gone. The main gate was at this point locked to keep people from entering trying to trespass at night. And, you know, she thought this poor kid probably tried to use the wrong gate to leave and might have gotten separated. However, after being in Colonial Park, I don't really, maybe, maybe as a kid, like maybe if you're playing hide and go seek, trying to see if your parents look like, come find I don't I don't really know but I think it's kind of hard to get lost out of that's just me but she goes up to or tries to go up to the kid and you know asks are you okay do you need me to find your parents and the little boy didn't move and he didn't even respond really so she decided to try a different question is everything okay did someone leave you here are you lost her dog got a slight growl under her breath and the child didn't even flinch at the dog's growling. So this girl decides to back up and walk away thinking, you know, I'm gonna grab my cell phone inside and make a call to the police about the kid who accidentally got locked in the cemetery. No big deal, right? 
but you know she felt bad for the kid because honestly who wouldn't at the age of like probably eight or nine years old I would have nightmares for a lifetime if I got locked in there most people would so she starts to get like power walking and trying to go back to the house and then her dog jerks the leash from behind her and she stops dead in her tracks she looks back and somehow this little boy was now on the other side of the gate her side of the gate there was literally no way he could have climbed the fence that fast maybe the gate had been unlocked all along and she didn't notice maybe kid was stirring up trouble by wandering around Either way, she turned and kept walking, now trying to drag the poor dog behind her. But the dog kept growling and, like, standing her ground. And she turned to look back, and the boy with the hood was now on the sidewalk with her. Her heart began to race, she, like, she reported. But, honestly, I, I don't I don't doubt it because my heart is racing having to retell the story. But, anyway, so the girl says she started walking faster. And the next time she looks back... She just, for some reason, happened to. She was about 100 feet from her apartment. She turns to look again, and the little boy wasn't on the sidewalk anymore. He was standing inches in front of her face. The hood kept her from actually seeing any facial features, but she says that she knew this couldn't be any normal child. Then she pulled the dog behind her and ran, and her arms said that she, she said her arms were like struggling against the dog's resistance but she was like fumbling with her keys afraid like for her life to even look back behind her in case the boy was still there waiting to like follow her into her house so you know her heart's pounding and she says that she pushes through the door to the apartment slams it shut locks the deadbolt i probably would have barricaded the door so i commend her for not even doing that much she kicks off her shoes and she's surprised that they really had even stayed on and she says she like slinks down into the couch, heat and adrenaline like radiating from her body. Shaking, she decides to call a friend. She gets on her knees and crawls towards the front room and she says, you know, I'll never know what possessed me to do this. But I looked out the window just enough to see that nobody was there. The hooded boy was gone. So she calls her friend and they, her friend picks up and says, you know, hey, what's up? And she says like, oh, thank God. And he goes, is everything? thing all right and she's like hesitant to tell him because like who you know people are gonna think crazy if you start talking about ghosts but she just kind of sits there and he goes hello are, are you there and she she man, she manages to stutter out yeah i'm not quite sure how to put this but i think a little kid tried to follow me home so on the other end of the phone there's just silence and her friend like clears his throat and is like um a little kid and she's like I'm not sure if it was a little kid though and he's what do you mean and she says well he was in the cemetery and then he was out of it he didn't talk and he didn't have a face oh what was he wearing was it hooded or dark she was just shocked that her friend started asking her about the kid's clothing like how would he know the little boy was wearing a dark hoodie so she kind of goes yeah how'd you know that and her friend goes on to tell her that back in the mid-1800s, there was a boys' orphanage just outside of Savannah. When the yellow fever hit the orphanage, it didn't have a lot of money or supplies to help the sick orphans. A lot of them actually died and were buried at Colonial Park Cemetery. 
And the weird thing is that the new playground this stands there today, like legitimately. I just saw this today, you guys, when I was downtown. That is where their grave marker used to be, that playground. And the orphans, upon arrival in the winter, get this. This is where it gets creepy. They were all issued a dark hooded jacket to keep them warm during the winter months. <laughs> Do you like, I, like, I just got chills, but I don't know about you, but I think, I don't know, it sounds kind of legit to me. I don't know, but I probably wouldn't even be allowed to tell the tale if I was this girl. So, kudos to you for actually living through that encounter. Because I'm kind of starting to look around my room right now a little wigged out, to be honest. But, anyways, there is the best yellow fever ghost story I really have heard. Aside from the ones that are mainly tied to special places, like the Marshall House or things like that. Um, but this is really why they think that Savannah is so haunted on top of all the wars and battles is because all of these grave disruptions and messing with the resting places of the dead. And that really, if you're from certain cultures, can really make you believe that you know souls are now at a state of unrest because their graves have been vandalized desecrated put a playground on top of or they didn't even have their own grave they were in a mass grave or their markers gone and nobody can find them anymore whatever you want to say it's still believed that this can cause a lot of unease in apparently the ghost community I mean I don't really know what's called but we're gonna go with it but I don't know I definitely can understand where this would be at though like where they would get this from and why they think it's such an important factor in Savannah being so haunted because like honestly the more I think about it between all the agony and unease of dying in a battle war to agonizing days where your family didn't even want to be with you because they thought they could get what you had like those could really cause some major upset if this whole ghost thing is real so what do you think you ready for next week's episode think your city is haunted? Do you think your city is haunted? Well, if you do, hit me up at Hauntedology on Instagram or Twitter. Send me a DM or a comment or whatever letting me know that you think your city has a story or stories worthy enough to make it onto Hauntedology.
Thank you guys so much for listening to Hauntedology. Another great episode is coming your way soon. And I cannot thank you enough. If you want to reach out to me, you can reach out on Twitter at Hauntedology or at Megan Noel underscore fit M-E-G-A-N-N-O-E-L underscore fit or on Instagram at Hauntedology or at Megs underscore Noel M-E-G-G-S underscore N-O-E-L. Thank you guys so much. Hauntedology is written and edited by me. Thank you guys so much.